if somebody comes in and literally takes one little piece of this and goes signs a client using the information, they could make way more than 10x in just one month, right? And so that's the sort of person who, you know, when they come in there and they see the information that we have, I mean, you could literally make your money back in a day if you want to just by like signing one client or raising your prices by seeing like if you want to make 100k and you're charging $25 an hour based on data now I can tell you you're going to have a very very hard time most likely impossible to get there. So if you see that and you walk in you're like okay I see what people charge per hour to get to this amount and you change make that change that day you make your money back, right? Um so yeah that's why like I really want action takers because uh, that's what that information is there for. Hello, and welcome to yet another fun episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show. In this conversation, Mitko Karshavsky returns for his second appearance on the podcast. Mitko just released a freelancer case study through his company, Parable. He describes it as like HBR, which is Harvard Business Review, but for freelancers and solopreneurs. And in the early stages of this conversation, he'll kind of explain what and why that comparison is accurate, and you can be the judge if you agree with it. This conversation discusses his lessons from interviewing hundreds of freelancers to compile this case study. We discuss why he pivoted his business model away from an online course type community to this info product model, and Mitko is the remote work guy. So of course, we get into his up-to-date thoughts on remote work, travel, and what he thinks that's going to look like in terms of the next five to 15 years. That's all I have to say before we get started. Enjoy. Mikko, welcome back for part two of the Lewis and Kyle show. Glad to have you here for a second conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm I'm stoked to be back on here again. Yeah, I want to get right into a question I have for you as most podcasts are. Um, so I this is a question we fielded from a friend of mine who listened to the show, listened to your episode you know, when it came out like roughly a year ago and said, I really liked your episode with Mitko, blah, 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 blah. These, what I learned from it. So I texted him this morning and said, Hey, we're talking to Mitko again today. Uh, what should we, where should we start? Do you have any ideas? Like, what do you, what do you want to get into? And one of his questions, super relevant for me, cause I'm moving to a new city in about four weeks is, and you've moved a lot. What do you do like step one, day one, week one to plug yourself into a new city, like so, friend group, getting comfortable. Some of those, like, I don't want to say hack, but mm -hmm. does communicate the idea. So, uh, funny enough, uh, I have a Twitter thread all on this. So I'm going to pull it up right now just to make sure that I don't miss anything. But one of the first things well, I saw my friend, he's lazy and should have just read. No, 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 no. Don't, don't say that. That's, that's not what I was saying. Um, but yeah, so he's like the least lazy person I know. <laughs> so I kind of have seven things that I like to do the moment that I get to a certain place, uh, as soon as possible. Right. So the first one for me is to figure out your immediate surroundings. So I like to make a radius of about like a mile that I walk within the first week. And when I'm doing that, I have my Google Maps open and I'm marking anything of interest, right? So, oh, this is an interesting coffee shop. It looks cool. This is a good grocery store. Oh, is this a gym? Let me, let me double check online what it looks like, that sort of thing. So I'm just kind of like marking and getting the lay of the land so I know um, like what's around me. The other thing that I always do, and this is a, a relatively new thing, but it's just one of the things that like, as I'm getting older, you know, you kind of have to come to terms with, which is I mark, I, I find the nearest slash best hospital in the area. And the reason why I do that is because now that I've been traveling for, for such a long time, the longer that you're on the road, uh, the higher the likelihood that eventually 
something is going to happen when you're on the road and you're going to have to go to a hospital, right? And I had this happen to me where my wife got a really bad cut on our on our on our finger, and in the moment I was like. I'm not sure if this needs stitches, like it might. And I was like fumbling with my phone, trying to find a hospital in the moment as my wife is like bleeding on the floor. And I was like, this is stupid. Like this is not planned that well. So for, you know, like you don't want to be looking for a hospital when you're having an emergency. So I just do a little bit of research or have a VA do some research of like, what is the best hospital closest by and just have that as part of like your SOP if something goes wrong. Um, This doesn't apply so much for if you just move to a new place, but if I'm getting an Airbnb, like for me, like, you know, I move every three to four months, I'll spend a hundred bucks the first week to improve the Airbnb. Whether that means, you know, getting, uh, you know, a new pillow or buying some plants for the apartment or just some of these things that like, you know, just, uh, I, I'll oftentimes upgrade the, co- uh, the coffee machine. Um, so that's one of them. Um, I will oftentimes, spend an entire day or two checking out all the coffee shops that I found on that original walk. Because I don't know if you guys relate with this, but in my opinion, there's nothing worse than walking into a coffee shop ready to crank out some work and uh, asking, uh, sorry, do you guys have Wi-Fi? And they're like, no, uh, we, we want people to talk to each other. Or you get on the Wi-Fi and it's like a speed from 1997, right? Uh, and so I would just hit a whole bunch of coffee shops in one or two days and mark like my top three favorites that I know for certain are like uh, kind of like good ones and favorite ones. And then um, this is kind of, I think the ultimate hack, okay? Host a party. If you just move into a new city, host a party and invite people, whoever you know around and tell them like, hey, bring uh, some people with you that you think are interesting. And that immediately creates a community for you. You get to meet a whole bunch of people right away and you immediately become a connector because you're the host, right? You're the person who put it together. So it kind of puts you as like the connecting node of that community. And there's a really great book that I recently read on this. I don't know if you guys know who Nick Gray is. He He's like pretty popular on, on Twitter. He's uh, he's. I also just read the book. Oh, uh, did you? The... It was recommended in a newsletter I read. And then I read it because it was like a two-hour read yeah. or two-hour cocktail party. Yep. But I, the book all t- coincidentally took me two hours to read. That's it. Maybe, awesome. Maybe by design. Yeah. So do you agree with that? But, like what he lays out, I think is such an amazing way to you get there, you find somebody to host a party, you host it, and then you're like the the connection for, for that community. So did you do the name tags at your party? Because So the book's called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party like a recipe it's like overly detailed for people who've like never done anything if you've like never like talked to another person this book could still get you to throw like a successful party it is like hilariously detailed i've thrown a lot of parties but i still like learn things from it but he's like open the door put cups out it's like yeah you got to put cups out but this is for somebody's like right. zero hosting experience to feel confident uh still a good read though but did you do the name tags so I haven't done the party yet. This is this is the funny thing is oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, is I am planning on doing it uh, in September when I have a little bit of time and I'm standing still. Uh, and I have a friend who I've already discussed with is going to host the party. But the other funny part is I was talking with Nick and I was like, hey, man, I want you to come on the podcast because this is a killer idea for nomads, right? Who are, you know, like exactly what we're talking about, like to establish a community. And he said, I'm going to come on the podcast after you throw the party. Cause I think it's going to be a much better uh, a podcast. And so I was like, deal. So now I have an incentive to do the party. I can't, you know, run away from it. And, uh, and yeah, so then I can have Nick on the podcast, but 
I think just in general, I've done similar things, right? Like where like we've done a party or, or some sort um, or some sort of event when we've gone to a city and every single time I do it, I'm like, we should do more of this. And so now that there's like a framework that I can follow, I'm very excited for it. Well, don't skip the name tags in September. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a must, yeah, right? Well, I if think you throw the party, really... and if you, if you ask, yeah, if you did no name tags, he's just going to cut your interview right there. Like <laughs> do it again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Obvious first tags. question. Three minutes in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think that the, those pieces of advice work for people that aren't nomadic too. It's like, you know, people don't know what's in their neighborhood. And if you take a, a mile radius and walk around, like I learned that, um, when I did cross country in freshman year of high school is like, I would run around this community that I had been in my entire life and find things that I had never seen before. And all of a sudden I knew, I knew new routes through like the neighborhood, new things. And I think that anybody can benefit from, uh, you know, a mile walk around their city and, and hosting a party and knowing where the best hospital is. I think that those are, are really good tips just for, for anyone. Yeah. I mean, my friend, uh, Dan Andrews, he travels with a bicycle. Uh, which is crazy. Um, but he, it's his thing. Like he packs the bicycle, he flies with it to Thailand or where, or Spain or wherever he's going. And he says the same thing, actually, Kyle, as you about like running, like he's like, I love riding my bike around these places because sometimes when you're passing by in a car or an Uber, you're going so fast that you don't notice these things, right? He doesn't want to run, mm -hmm. but he, when he's biking, it's fun. It's something that he does every day. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I hadn't noticed that before. It gives you a bit more time to, uh, to spot those places. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Is that so, the tropical NBA guy? Just to try yeah. to like, is that him? Yep. Okay, that's very cool. Um, Miko, the last time that we talked, you were, I think, I think we talked on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday and you're getting married on Friday. Uh, so how did the wedding go? And how has your life changed uh, since that big event? Uh, um, wedding went great. Thank you for asking. It was mid COVID. So it was, uh, it was a small wedding, but it was like exactly what, uh, exactly what we wanted. It was super fun. in in, um, in an area of Kentucky called Red River Gorge, which is kind of like a little pocket of California in the Midwest. It's bizarre. If you've never been there, it's awesome. I highly recommend it, but it went really well. It was a lot of fun. And in terms of like how life has changed, you know, it's both changed a lot in that you like you there's a, a a separate level of responsibility that you have now to your partner but at the same way it's like not changed at all because like my wife and i have been together for eight years right like we've been married for two but we're coming on to nine years so we were dating for seven years before we got married so like we were living together we were traveling together so like really in the day-to-day -day stuff like nothing's really changed that much um but like, you know, you have to go through and like, uh, I don't know, like add your, uh, you know, spouse to your bank accounts and like do all these like boring things that kind of like make you feel like, oh, this is like really official now. Do you know what I mean? Um, so in that way it's changed, but I don't know on the day to day, not, not so much. I think just because we've been together for such a long time. That's, uh. Exciting that it's going well, though. <laughs> it's better. You're like, well, I'm a married man. I've been watching a show with my dad called Married with Children. It's phenomenal. Is it the the old uh, it's sitcom? From like the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, what's the yes. guy's name? It's something Bundy, isn't it? Ed O'Neill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Ed O'Neill's the actor, and then he's Al Bundy. And uh, right, right, right. He does not have positive things to say about his marriage. <laughs> uh, that's been like my nightly just one episode. Get some chuckles in. Fall right to sleep. Yeah. 
highly recommend. That's, uh, that's also a just like Creek interesting to. Recently. Okay, nice. It's very much like a this that actually fits well into my point here. Actually, uh, the that's like the Overton window. It's like if you wanted to find the Overton window for someone, just be like, okay, watch that show and then watch an episode of Shit's Creek. What's the Overton and, like, window? Changing norms over time. Uh, well, watch an episode. Of- <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, the uh, the Overton window describes more or less like what is socially acceptable to talk about, mm. like what jokes are within the boundaries of funny versus offensive. Like what was funny then is considered offensive now. What is like weird and fringe now? That would have, or what is like you know just the opposite in the opposite direction? And just like the humor on that show would be extremely racy and like whoa and to call it like. Uh, what's the term scandalous or whatever like it would cause yeah. outrage if like someone just released that today like outrage i mean but we say that a lot about the office do you know what i mean like my wife and i both love the office and it's like half the episodes would get canceled if they were uh released today <laughs> yes yeah which is funny because like the guy who's the this is like a total derail here but ed o'neill's like, like modern family which is like i guess like a pretty in vogue current show maybe i don't know yeah. I'm out of my depth here <laughs> watching like one sitcom from the nineties and acting like I know anything about TV. But, uh, that is, that is our riff on air life. Unless we bring it back up. Um, I'm going to transition away from this area of exhausted my degree of ability to say things <laughs> that make sense on and ask you about the pivot that you did at parable from kind of an interactive, uh, synchronous in many circumstances, live kind of community educational group, et cetera, to more of a Harvard business school type business model. Tell us about like what was the motivation for that decision? Maybe a little context on what things were before, because I kind of maybe butchered the explanation. And what you switched to, where you got the idea to switch, and then we'll get into like you know, the product and the lessons, etc. Yeah. So when the reason why I initially started Parable was because I'm a nerd, right? Like the thing that I enjoy the most is talking to like other business owners and just talking about like how's business going and like how are you doing this and how are you doing that, and. I know that other people are also interested in that and that there's a lot of value in those conversations, right? Like there's a reason why there's so many business podcasts because everybody wants to figure out like, okay, how are you doing this? And how are you doing that? And et cetera, et cetera. So I started, I started Parable because I wanted to explore more of that. I wanted to scratch my own itch, but I also wanted to do it uh, publicly, you know, within a closed group for people who wanted to participate so that others can also see how different businesses are doing that. So the way that we started doing it was that it was a community and people could pay to get in. And then we would release uh, case studies with different businesses. Um, and they were the case studies were essentially like, you know, kind of like PDFs. But then also along with it, there was a video uh, interview with the founder. And we wanted to do a whole bunch of different ones, different ones. Right. So we did like uh, a SaaS business over here and like a podcasting business and, you know, whatever and whatever. There was a bunch of different ones, an agency, whatever it may be. But what I found was that people were kind of like, I noticed that people were interacting with the case studies that were most relevant to their business or the business they wanted to start, right? They were like, they had kind of like blinders on like, oh, uh, this person owns an agency. I want to learn more about that. But then it was a bunch of different businesses. They just didn't really care so much about them. Um, And so that was starting to become really difficult, right? It was like, I was almost feeling like I was like trying to force people into interacting and being a part of the community when all they wanted to do was figure out more about their business, like learn, you know, uh, different strategies to help them with their business, you know, ways to grow it, how to get new clients or customers, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so because of that, I was like, okay, like, let's pause here. Let's, re let's rethink how we do this. How can we lean into what our customers are showing us with their actions instead of trying to force them to do something else? And the way that we pivoted was to go deeper, not wider, right? Like, okay, let's, let's let you go down the rabbit hole. Like how, in, how much more information, how much deeper can we go in into each one of these different businesses? And there's actually a lot of, you know, precedent for this. Like Harvard Business Review has been doing this for, I don't know, decades, right? They go and they look at a business and they go really, really deep into that business so that other people who have similar businesses can learn from that, right? And so that's what we pivoted into. And what we're doing now is releasing what we're calling case study reports of different types of businesses. Um, and so uh, that allows us to kind of really go in deep on all these different business models and allow people who are interested in those models to get a lot out of those case studies. Yeah, I think one line that was on your sales page that I really liked was, and you know, this sticks out in memory to me. I've done like one or two HBS case studies in school that we had to write reports on whatever was like the Porsche Cayenne launch, right? That's like the classic one that we had to do was like, you know, you're Porsche and you only ever sold sedan or sports cars, but let's launch an SUV and like whatever. And it's what you said is like my customers, like you're here because you want to be an online entrepreneur. You want to be like somewhat location independent. You probably want to create digital products. You probably don't have a billion dollars of budget. You probably don't have a 50 person engineering team. Like that's useful theoretically for like a middle level manager, project manager to consider it. But it's like, that's just, we're just not <clears throat> mid-level managers at billion dollar companies. Uh, and to be fair to Harvard Business School, that is what a lot of people go there to do. So that is a pretty good product to offer the people. Uh, but you're like, we're not that. We're free, like, you know, into the specific one you're talking about is like freelancers. Uh, so I like that that line a lot. How did you pick that as your first one to get into? And then let's also get into like some of the process for building yeah. this product and assembling the report. Yeah. So the right? way that we, the what I say is like, and I'm, I'm assuming this is the line that you, that you're referring to is instead of focusing on these billion dollar companies that you kind of can't relate to as an online business owner, what we focus on is like small businesses that you can actually learn from, right? It's like the business that you actually want to build so that you can, you read this thing and you immediately know how to apply these lessons to your own business. Uh, and the reason why we focus on freelancers was, um, it was kind of like we looked at it from like two different points of view where it was like, A, we're testing this, right? It's a pivot. We need to like essentially do an MVP of this. Who do we know most of? Like, who do I have the most contacts of that we can get this done the, the quickest that I think is going to be the easiest? Um, the second point would be, you know, uh, what type of business owners do I have in my audience, you know, that I have a lot of in my audience? And the third point that I kind of thought of was a mixture of like, I think a lot of the lessons for freelancers would be valuable for other businesses as well, right? Like even if you're an agency, you can take a lot of those lessons and, and use them as well. But then also for me, freelancing is a sort of um, base level business skills. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it as like most people should start there. So if you're new to online business, if you're just getting started, I think a lot of people try to like jump to these sexy businesses, like build a SaaS or have an agency or, you know, e-commerce or whatever. 
instead of them starting at like the first level and going up a bit more slowly. Uh, and I, I recommend people do that instead of trying to jump to like the fourth, fifth step. And so that's kind of the other reason why we did it was in terms of if we're serving a wider audience of, of online business owners, let's get the base, you know, set, like let's start there. Um, and so that's kind of how I thought through starting off with freelancing. Yeah. And once you deliver to that group of people who are the ones that are going to go on to start those sexier agencies, et cetera, you can serve them as they grow as well. Um, which is a really good strategy. One of my questions is like, you know, the HBS cases that I've done, uh, at the end of it, it's like an open ended question that you're supposed to, you know, come up with an answer. And then you sort of compare what you've done to what happened in reality. Um, is there like a, an action that the students that buy these reports are, are required to take? Like you take in this information, produce, you know, what you would do and then compare it to what actually happened. Or is it just like, you know, a report on the business and, and the decisions and why they made them? Yeah. So we tried doing something like that in the community and it just didn't quite hit as well as I thought it would. I thought that it would do really well, but it just didn't. And that's a lot easier to do in a, in a community setting as well, right? Is like, I would have to have some sort of uh, like further on connection in order to like really judge that uh, in, in, in the way that we're selling it now. So at the moment, there isn't anything specifically like that. However, what we put together and it wasn't part of the plan originally, but when we started building this out in the two months that we built it, I we decided to add it in, is essentially a trends database. And so what we did was we built out a database with a whole bunch of information in it, right? So it's like, how many years did it take them to hit to get to $100,000, right? Um, are they using marketplaces? Or are they charging by hour? Like, it was like a whole bunch of these different like data points. And when you put them out into a, a database, what I noticed was that you can almost kind of match them up and, and inform trends around that. And so the reason why I think that this sort of answers the original idea uh, that, that you were talking about there with HBS is that it's very easy for you to then insert yourself as the next you know sort of person in that database and say, what am I trying to get to? And what do people who've already gotten there do differently than me? You know what I mean? Like you can almost like fit yourself in there and say, oh, that's really weird that, you know, 90% of the people that have hit 100K charge their clients in this way. And I'm not doing that. Maybe that's something I should do because statistically speaking, it's what people were doing to get to this point, right? And so I think in that way, it makes it very actionable where you can like slot yourself in there and say, what are these people doing that I'm not that I need to put in place right now? Yeah, I think people have their, right? They open your report and they already have their assumptions about how long freelancing will it will take them to get to whatever point they have in their mind. And, you know, shatters your assumptions for most people who aren't like too narcissistic to be like, okay, if there are a hundred people studied here, I'm likely to be somewhere fat, somewhere between the, the worst and the best, right? In general, just like how you generally view yourself at most things. And then you can see the people you most relate to, right? Well, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, men versus women, mm -hmm. U.S. citizens versus international people, you know, writers versus coders, et cetera. And kind of people like who are just starting out versus people who had like a pretty impressive career and decided to quit and then start offering a service. And you kind of, again, can rank yourself and judge yourself just like people do at the gym or any other kind of competitive activity. And then that is like kind of what you're saying, Kyle's like your answer, your, their assumption is like, well, I would fall here. And then it's like, well, realistically, you're going to fall more like you give people some accuracy and set some expectations. 
But I think kind of like a subsequent question or an adjacent version of Kyle's question. I interviewed someone without Kyle a few days ago, a friend of mine named Jackson. And he is like studies happiness. He's a lecturer about happiness and does like corporate trainings on mindfulness and those kinds of things. And he teaches his big thing is like very much like the James Clear because he doesn't want to be in like his differentiator, right? So he doesn't just want to be another person that's like, get sunlight, like do whatever. Mm -hmm. He's all about like the behavior change and all about like the, I'm useless to you if none of you, if none of your lives are changed by this long term. It's like his whole thing is like happiness habits, curriculum and implementation. So I guess that's kind of like another version of Kyle's question is like, what have you built into the product to really hold people, hold people's hands or build systems or guardrails to help people like really take action, not just like binge through your content one night and then be like, that was cool. I'm just not going to do anything though. Like, how do you try to guide people into do, taking action with your information? Yeah. So, so two questions, uh, two part answer. The first one is, um, that when you like, we try to make things very, very clear. I think inaction comes from confusion. So when you make things very, very clear and you know, in almost bite-sized chunks, what is the next thing that you need to do? It makes things less scary to take action. So by making the information that we present so granular that you can almost break it down in that way of, okay, me com comparing myself to these people, what is the next small step that I need to take to get here? I also think realistically looking at these things and knowing how long things take and pacing yourself is very helpful, right? Like there's so many people, you guys have probably seen this on the online space, like, all right, how to make uh, $200,000 in the next six months. Like that's bullshit. No one does that. And if they do, they got lucky, right? So uh, my friends at the Tropical MBA that, you, that we talked about earlier, they have this great rule called the 1,000 day rule, right? Which essentially means that on average it's going to take you, yeah. It's a great it's article. It's killer. It's and really it's killer article. because it's true. Like on average, it's going to take you about three years for you to feel, you know, like you can rely on your business. And lo and behold, what does our data show? It took people about, about 40% of people, it took them three years to get to $100,000, right? It was the number one most cited uh, year that it took them, the, the amount of time that it took them to hit that, to hit that goal. So that's the first thing, right? Is like really breaking this down so that you understand where you lie and that kind of what the next steps are granularly. The other part of it is, that I want people who are coming into this to already be action takers. One of the things that I found from you know running a business and working with a lot of clients in the past is that is a very, very, very hard thing to coach people into is taking an action. It's almost like a mindset thing and a muscle that you have to have built. So I'm not so much trying to, to, to coach people into that. I want people who are coming here and buying this to look at this information and, and be action takers already. Right. And so that goes a lot into the messaging and goes a lot into the, like the way that we're selling it and who I'm selling it to. So if you're just getting started and you're, you know, not somebody who is going to like take action right away and, and be a self-starter, then uh, I think there's a lot of things that you need to figure out first and build up to before you, you buy a case study like this. Right. Yeah, it's not like a couch to 5K product yeah, if you're yeah. familiar with that kind of phenomenon. Yeah, I think, yeah, one kind of like, this is like another assumption a lot of people have. It comes back to like finishing books. Like you'd probably be happier, right? Mm -hmm. Someone buys your product for whatever the price is, finds something interesting, right? Immediately goes out and closes a client for 2X that, 2X the price of the book mm -hmm. or the, the PDF or the product and then never returns to your book. It's like, that's more of a win for you and for that person. And the person who spends it reads the whole thing and doesn't change. So it's almost like, just read this. There's going to be, you know, there's a lot you might already know. There's a lot you definitely won't already know. 
if you find the one thing, immediately use it and then never look yeah. back. Like, I mean, that's a win for everyone. I, I just read uh, Tiago like, Forte's uh, uh, second building a second brain book. I read four chapters and I put something in place and I haven't picked up the book since, right? Like I didn't finish it. And there was a look when I was, I don't know, like as I've gotten older, I have less guilt about this, but especially like when I was younger, I felt, oh, there you go. Oh, you got the hard cop. You're, you're fancy. I have the, I have the Kindle version. Um, but it's like, I, I don't really feel guilty for not finishing books anymore. Cause the book is what, like $10 and I already got like a thousand dollars worth out of it. Right. Just by like reading the first four chapters. And if I, ever need a refresher or like feel like finishing it, I'll go back to it. And it's the same way with our, with our case studies. Like the report is 297, right? That's what it sells for right now. We're going to very likely raise the price. But if somebody comes in and literally takes one little piece of this and goes signs a client using the information, they could make way more than 10 X in just one month. Right. And so that's the sort of person who, you know, when they come in there and they see the information that we have, I mean, you could literally, make your money back in a day if you want to just by like signing one client or raising your prices by seeing like if you want to make 100k and you're charging $25 an hour based on data now I can tell you you're going to have a very very hard time most likely impossible to get there so if you see that and you walk in you're like okay I see what people charge per hour to get to this amount and you change make that change that day you make your money back right um so yeah that's why like I really want action takers because uh, that's what that information is there for. Yeah, it kind of comes back to, this is probably like something in your book, right? Freelancers always talk about, you know, if your client who's like, it's like a $50 project and they're like, I think I'm gonna need to like get to know you. I need to know your favorite <laughs> color. Like, let's like hang out for now. Let's get a beer. Let's play around in a golf. And right, like, is right, there any right. way you could do $45 instead of 50? And then you have your clients who are just like, you know, They've been on the phone. They're like, I like your vibes. You seem like a good guy. How much is it? 3000 Okay. What's your Ven you just, you got Venmo work? And you're like, sure, I guess Venmo yeah, works. Yeah, that's like, like right, a mind. Cool. Uh, it's just like a, those clients the, that are the using this. The thing with there is it's almost, yeah. it, this takes a little bit of time, I think, to, to figure out. But it's, if you, as a client, right, when you, when someone charges you a lot of money, you walk into that relationship saying, if they're charging me this much money, it's because they're good, right? Like think about going to buy wine and you're at the store and you see an $11 bottle of wine and you see a $150 bottle of wine. If you don't know anything about wine, which one do you think is better, right? The one that's 150 bucks, right? Because there's someone, there's a reason why it's $150. And when most clients hire a professional to do something, they're hiring them because they're looking for an expert to do that thing, right? So they're not, they don't, it's like going to buy wine without knowing wine. And so when you're looking at two different freelancers or service providers, and one is 25 bucks an hour and the other one is 250 bucks an hour, you're going to assume the $250 one knows way more. They're an expert. So you don't need to babysit them. So when they say, hey, this project is going to cost 3,500 bucks, you're like, great. I have no problem paying that because I know you're a badass, right? If you're 25 bucks an hour, I walk into a relationship thinking something isn't right here. I need to watch them. Something's going to go wrong at some point. So I do need to make sure I know them to make sure they're not crap, right? Uh, so that's the reason why that happens. So I always tell people like, like shoot high, man. Like if you, if you want less of a headache, definitely charge, charge more. What are some additional, maybe there's a way for me to ask the question a more interesting that it went like, what's an additional tip from, from the PDF, but what's something I think, you know, you, your background, you've done a lot of freelancing in your past, you know, you've done copywriting, you've done a lot of e-commerce work. Uh, what are some things that, you know, you learned from assembling it 
that about freelancing as a yeah. business. So model. there was a whole bunch of it's interesting because there's a lot of things that I assumed or like I thought were correct that were now proven correct, right? That I have data around. So that's been really fun because there were some some things and and on the flip side too, like there were some things that I assumed were going to be correct that actually didn't seem to be represented in the data. So now for us, it's very fun to say like, did we ask the questions not in the best way? Like, is there a, a way for us to dig in deeper on this to uh, to see if, if if we did something, if there was like a better way for us to mine that data, right? So um, obviously one of the big ones was um, where people get their clients. That was very interesting that I assumed I knew and was proven very, very correct. 93% of clients, uh, I'm sorry, 93% of freelancers that have $100,000 a year have the exact same client acquisition strategy. 93%, okay? And if you're... What is it? Yes. Uh, Google Ads. Cold. Organic. Referral. Oh, wait, I saw your tweet. I saw your tweet 93% of freelancers who make over $100,000 a year cite referrals as their number one acquisition strategy. Now there's about, I would say uh, 30% of those, 30 to 40% of those do use something else in addition to that, right? So there are some who are like, I have a website that I have really good SEO. What there's do you mean? Cold start problem, cold start right? problem. You don't have referrals if you have, if yeah. you're, if yeah, you're yeah, starting yeah. from right, zero, right. you don't have referrals. You yep. don't have existing clients to exactly, exactly. create so, new I mean, it's interesting from. because I think, especially with the ones who have an additional thing, um, they have almost like, like a power up. Like someone has a really popular website or someone has a very good Twitter uh, account where they're able to get uh, essentially people coming in from, from Twitter, right? So it's like, um, but all of them had referrals in common. And then some of them had something in addition that really helped them peak. And then those were the people that were doing like, Two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year uh, as as a freelancer, or the ones who had something in addition to that, right? They had a personal brand of some sort, whether that would be through SEO or, or through social media. Um, so that was an interesting one. The one that I this is the one that we kind of were proven correct on was having a focused niche and communicating it in your pitch, right? So like. I do copywriting for direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands, right? So that's one that I thought would 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 uh, have a much higher correlation with a high income and a high revenue, and it didn't actually. It was so-so. Like it, it, there were some people who weren't and still did really well, but then there were some people who were very much on point and proved that we thought that that would be valuable. I think this is one of the things that when we do the version two is, is something that we're going to look into a little bit further and ask the questions a little bit more differently. But that's one of those where if you're, if you're doing everything correct, right, when you compare yourself to all these other freelancers and you're like, I'm doing everything these people are doing, but I'm not hitting the same uh, results that they are, that's the one that I would hit, right? It's like, you know, that's the one that I'd have to adjust, you know, that, that, that I'd have to change if I wasn't doing that already. Um, and in, in terms of the V2, because I, I brought that up, like one of the, one of the things that I'm really excited about this is I was trying to decide, like, do we do this as like a lifetime thing? So is it like 
you buy it once and you get access to it forever, or are we going to sell each version differently? And we decided to do it as a lifetime because what that means is next month we can update it, right? So when we get, I'm getting more freelancers in right now. So that means that we can update it and you kind of, it just continuously gets better and better and better. And we're, I'm already getting people that are coming in saying like, Hey, it would be really awesome if I had this, right? So one of the next things that we're going to be introducing very, very soon is actually templates, right? So I said referrals we might be introducing a template to actually help you systematize getting referrals, right? To, to actually make a, a way of you doing that instead of like, we'll just ask for referrals. So uh, that's when I say V2, uh, that's what I mean by that. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, what from your understanding and, you know, I guess collection of information is the lowest time to highest income freelancing niche in 2022. Uh, can you explain what you mean by niche? Um, you know, I mean, there's Got photographers, it. there's, uh, but there's like baby photographers, there's, uh, you know, wedding photographers, there's all these different ways that you can be a yeah, freelancer. Yeah, okay. oh, so yeah, skill plus the, niche. Like the lowest time to the highest income that you've seen. So, uh, this was not our strongest suit for, th for this initial version, because most of the people that we got were, it was a split between copywriters and marketing professionals. So marketing professionals is defined as like, you know, some people doing SEO, some people doing like some mixture of like SEO and copywriting. So they were kind of a, a bit different. Um, I had harder time getting in touch with, with developers. They're a bit more standoffish about like what I'm doing. Uh, and I'm hoping that's something that now that we have it released and they can see what it looks like, they're going to be more friendly towards. So it's definitely something that we're working on for the next version is to actually get a more diversified group of, uh, of freelancers to, to study. I will tell you that just within the copywriting field, right, for people who identified as copywriters, it went from $50,000 a year, which is actually our, like, in order for you to be in the case study, you had to have been freelancing for at least three years and make at least $50,000 a year, because then that gave us enough data to work with, right? Uh, and as a side note, the number of people who have been freelancing for like a year and make 50 grand from the start was shocking. That was the one that I don't have hard numbers on, but I was, I, I walked away doing this research saying like, wow, I like, there's a lot more people doing 50, 60 K in one, one and a half years than I was expecting. So that was very surprising. I think that has a bit more to do with, um, that businesses are a lot more friendly towards freelancing now post COVID because they're way more comfortable with remote work. That was one of the things that we found as well as a lot of our freelancers saying like, it's a lot easier for me to get clients now because you know, they don't care that I'm in California and they're in New York or whatever it may be. Um, so, Anyways, I will tell you that the big gap was even within the copywriting as like, hey, I'm a copywriter. We had people who had been working for, had been freelancing for about the same time, do 50,000 all the way up to $350,000 a year, all as a quote unquote copywriter. And was the difference for them the niche, like you hinted at earlier, no, if they were like a niche copywriter versus just a copywriter? The difference there is in that, that explains specific that spread. scenario, it's personal brand. So that really, the really high earners, they tend to have a personal brand. They have a big social media following. They're well known as a copywriter. They're a bit more of a leader in the field, right? So they're not just a copywriter. There's nothing wrong with being just a copywriter, but they're, they're a copywriter and a thought leader in copywriting, right? They're a leader in the, 
Yeah, they they are seen as the, the copyright for copywriters, yeah. right? Like they're they're in that field, so they can charge way higher rates. Well, I'm just thinking about you know, I don't know if each of us has a different person coming to mind, but for me, it's like immediately thinking of Cole Schaefer from Honey Copy as like one of those copywriters who's got like a really solid email list. It's really funny. His LinkedIn posts pop off. His Instagram goes pretty viral all the time too because he just writes like mm -hmm. you know, interesting poetry and like. He has an aesthetic and he's just got a brand. He's got an identity. There's more to him than just like, I need someone who can write, you know, pretty words. It's like, he's got, that's who I, he, he has that. I'm thinking of someone. Right. And then it's, mm -hmm. uh, the word I would say is non-commoditized, right? If they're a person with attributes, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just non-commoditized versus I go on Upwork and I'm like, I need a copywriter versus I want this person with these characteristics yeah. and this vibe and this trusted yeah, absolutely. And the Upwork one is, is an interesting thing to bring up because it was one that I was very curious to learn more about. And we did find most of the high earning um, freelancers do not use a, a marketplace like Upwork. Um, you know, we had a whole bunch that they could choose from. Uh, the most popular was Upwork, which when I say the most popular with an asterisk, because not that many people said they use marketplaces. Um, so, you know, if it's the most, I am going to assume it's the most popular, but that's the one that I'm actually going to push back against. Like me, from like a business standpoint, I view it as I would almost say what I mean by push back is um, I would say looking at the data, it doesn't mean don't use Upwork because I love these marketplaces as a marketing channel. I think when done right, they're viewed as a marketing channel, whether it's like social media, SEO, referrals. Uh, you know, advertising, I don't know, partnerships, marketplaces, right? It's one of, not the only. I think when done right, you just, you, you know, you have a profile on all of them. And if a client comes through there, then hell yeah, awesome. And if they don't, then that's fine. Uh, there's no reason not to have a profile on there. And then just increase your prices to, to you know, assume the percentage they take. And if someone comes through, great. If they don't, then they don't. Uh, but data, you know, based on data, uh, a very small percentage of the high earning freelancers, meaning a hundred K plus we're using, uh, marketplaces. I want to switch now to the more of your, kind of your personal thought leadership, right? The, the future of work, the, the remote work infrastructure, you kind of hinted at the, uh, probably even pretty dramatically since we had done our first episode, just dramatically increased social acceptance of remote freelancer, like a hybrid, not a hybrid, a zero in-person relationship between you and someone you are trusting to pay and create a deliverable. What are some other kind of recent changes you think with staying power? What's kind of like your vision for the next, I don't know, two to five years of, because at least, you know, let's, let's call optimistically, things look pretty firmly over mm -hmm. as far as like in terms the of the necessity COVID of remote work and the same way it was necessary before. Uh, so it's like what now that it is true, Exactly, exactly. Now that it is truly, you know, optional in the sense of like, there's not a government saying you can't congregate. Uh, what do you see as like staying lasting changes over the next two to five years? And then if you want to get really uh, creative yeah, and share like so, crazy um, longer term I think visions. the trend that we're going to see over the next two to five years is that remote work is like the cat's out of the bag, right? Like we're, we're beyond the return point. Um, the interesting thing is, Remote work is really the first domino, right? So when you start talking about like 10, 20, 30 years in the future, remote work 
is a is the first domino of a much longer you know domino line so to say so there's a lot of things that like if you just like think from like a logic standpoint they're going to happen because of this event the interesting thing that i think is going to be dominant in the news over the next two to five years is uh companies trying to retain some form of like control or uh, let's do things the way we used to do them by forcing uh, the hybrid, you know, work workforce, right? Like we're gonna, you can work from home like Monday, Friday, uh, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, come into the office, which by the way, did you know there's an acronym for this? I just found out about this. It's called a twat worker. So if you work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because it's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, right? It's T-W-A-T, they call it a twat worker, which I was like, okay, get a better acronym, uh, but hilarious either way. So I don't know if you need to, bleep that out. I'm not, I don't know if that's that bad of a word. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. You're just spelling <laughs> words for us, man. But I thought that You're was just inter- putting letters that was in like an order and saying what the sound is. Like it wasn't some like weirdo on the internet. Um, right, right, right. Um, so it's, bro, everyone's a meme dealer. The, the thing it's... with hybrid work is I, it's going to fail. So companies are bringing in hybrid there. A lot of these companies are hybrid first, the issue is that in the long term, they're either going to go remote or they're going to go office first. And either is fine. That's my thing is like, if you, if you're like, Hey, uh, I want to work in the office and all of your employees are like, great. I'm all with you. I also enjoy working in the office as well. Awesome. But you're either one or the, you're the other, because if we play it out, here's what happens, right? If you're hybrid, that means that you're most likely you're not putting in place the infrastructure and the processes that you need in order to function efficiently remotely, right? So you're going to overly rely on your days in the office, right? You're going to be kind of getting work done. You're going to be kind of efficient when you're going to, when you're remote. And then you're on your one day, two days, three days in the office, you're going to over optimize to get like the things done or get things in place in order to people kind of be doing their job when they're remote. And just by doing that, even doing one day a week of that, you're going to start to lean towards the office. Like the office days are going to be the ones that you're getting the most work done. They're going to be the most efficient ones. So you're going to slowly push into, you know, becoming all office, right? The other thing with hybrid work is that just doing one day a week or one day every two weeks or whatever it may be of required office work, you actually kill a lot of the benefits of being remote, right? So that includes hiring the best people, no matter where they are from the world. That includes reducing your costs and and increasing your profit margin because you no longer have to pay for an office or snacks or the energy electricity that it takes to run an office. So you're immediately cutting a lot of the benefits, but taking on some of the negatives, right? That may come along with remote work, which of course there are some, some negatives and downsides. So because of that, I think if you get caught in that place where you're in the middle, you're going you're gonna to lose out in that way because you're not adopting the remote work strategies and getting those benefits, but you're also not like, I think what's going to happen, and, I, and I've compared this, I've said this a few times publicly, where I think there's going to be an industry or a niche, I don't know what you want to call it, of companies that are like, hey, uh, we get things done in the office and it's part of our company culture. And when we sell products and services, we sell them as office companies, right? The same way that people love buying Amish furniture because it's handmade 
and they're okay with paying a premium for that, they're voting for their dollars, there's going to be people out there that are like, I hate this remote work thing. So I only work with companies who work in the office, right? And that's great. If that's how you get clients and you're okay with them, that's awesome, right? Uh, but I think in the next two to five years, we're going to see a lot of companies trying to have their cake and eat it too and do this hybrid thing and try to please their employees uh, by giving them some ounce of remote and it's going to backfire. And we're going to end up having either a, a, a fully remote first uh, company or companies that are like, no, that's not for us. We're going to stay in the office. Yeah, I think one beneficial hybrid way of doing it is the like remote days and so rather not like a Monday through Friday just remote budget. So kind of like you have your vacation time, then you have your remote time and then you have your XYZ. Cause I think one of the big benefits of remote work, right. Is like, you can take more vacations that are half vacations, which for things like visiting your parents, right. You don't need to visit mm -hmm. your parents and also be like on vacation, like visiting your parents. And let's say they're in some non-interesting right. city it's like, you're not really there on vacation. So like, you don't want to burn your vacation days. You're just going to like eat dinner together, go to like your favorite restaurants together. But like, for the most part, they're just going to watch daytime television and you're just going to work. And so it's like, you have your, you know, maybe like a 20 day remote allocation, your two weeks vacation and then work versus being like the Monday, Friday thing. Cause I think you're right a lot about a lot of those benefits. Uh, so I think like, that's a pretty good, I still think like the couch out of the bag in terms of like people have this expectation for some of those increased amounts of flexibility and like half vacation, half work stuff. But definitely some of like again in general the, mm -hmm. like why cliches are a thing well, right so when you're trying to have your cake and eat it too you're just gonna get nice the way to think about it yeah. is are you remote first or are you office first right you can't be hybrid first that's what i'm trying to say so it's okay if you function hybrid from time to time like exactly what you're explaining like hey if you're going home or you need to take like whatever yeah, like work hybrid in terms that like you're working remotely, but normally you're in the office, but your operating system needs to be one of the two, right? Hybrid first as an operating system. As a, exactly, from a company wide exactly. standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one point that you, that you, that you brought up there Go that's really it, important is like, if you operate as a office first company or as a remote first company, you're building systems and processes that match that. And if you are a, an office first company, like masquerading as a remote first company, you're going to lose out, uh, mm -hmm. and, like, and vice versa on the benefits of being either one of those things by like trying to be this like middle of the road guy, just to try and make everybody happy. It's like, yeah, because the, yeah, the underlying mechanic there is that if you have one fully remote employee, in order for them to be as efficient and productive as possible, all of your processes need to be remote first friendly, right? Because if they're not, if you're not doing your procedures mm -hmm. the right way, if you're not documenting meetings, if you're not doing all of these little things in a remote friendly way, then that person that's working remotely for you will not get their job done in the in the best way that they can get it done because they're going to have insufficient data right and so that's what i mean is if you even have mm. uh, i think even if you're lewis like you're describing like even if you have these moments of of some hybrid work you need to be either okay as a company knowing that you're not going to be as efficient during those periods or your your underlying procedures and systems need to be remote friendly 
right? Because otherwise, like you're, you're, how are you gonna get? How are you gonna do your project management, right? Like unless everyone has a remote friendly way of doing that. This is a very high question to ask, but how do the cities change? So we talked about like work and companies, but like how do how does travel change? How do cities change? How does like the map and physical space change? Yeah. Uh, in your vision for the future, Kyle's always with the real estate questions. Like, you know, do we just see a couple more, you know, hot spots spring up? So I think like that the like kind of ten years ago, right? Like the trying to have your cake and eat it too was trying to demand an in-person workforce in a really random location, right? Like you're not going to convince a software developer to move anywhere but San Francisco, LA, or New York City, or you're just not going to hire the best software engineer. I think that's only going to get exas- like more exaggerated over time. So like if you're truly an in-person first company, yeah, you're going to have to be in like a city that people are well, willing to. That's always been true. I mean the but, the part of it that is changing is that there are remote not, employees yeah. and there's a disconnect between where you work and where you live. And so like I mean, I'll admit can answer mm-hmm. the question, but I have my own opinions about how, you know, the, the world looks in a in a well, first of all, we just don't know what a world looks like where work and like where you live are disconnected and that is unfolding in front of us. And Mitko, I think is one of the people that are, you know, on that forefront writing about it, uh, and thinking about it a lot. Yeah. I think Mitko yeah. thinks more globally than you yeah, and I as so well. There's, I'm thinking, um, like, very, and, I, and I mean, yeah. I think it's a super fun here. conversation. So Kyle, I'm, I'm very excited to kind of hear what you think about it, but one of the immediate like almost things that we're experiencing right now, like in the moment. Uh, there's there's two, three things that are happening right now that are very interesting in, in, in this sphere. The first one is the donut effect, right? So this is happening right now exactly because of the hybrid work that's becoming very popular at the moment where you're getting a donut effect in terms of um, you're having a lot of people moving as far away as possible from their HQ, but that they can still come in once a week. Right. So you get this donut effect where people are like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm okay living an hour away from New York because, like, once a week, I'm going to take the train and I'm going to suffer through it as long as I can get the lower cost of living and, like, maybe like bigger space that I get for living an hour away from New York. Right. That's not something that would have been okay if you did it every single day, for example. So you're getting this sort of donut effect. That's the immediate effect of the hybrid workforce. And that's kind of the long term issue of not doing remote first because you're not unlocking that opportunity to be global as opposed to still kept, uh, you know, centralized in some way. You're not decentralizing opportunity. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you're getting a lot of city to city competition. And we've already seen this in terms of, you know, Miami really trying to compete with San Francisco in terms of tech talent. Uh, I think that you can make the, the argument that like Austin is the new LA in terms of a lot of like the entertainment industries going there. There's also a lot of tech talent going to, to Austin. That's, uh, you know, I'm not saying that, that, that that's not true. So you're getting a lot of these cities almost like, like businesses competing with each other in the marketplace of talent. Right. And this is something that we even saw all the way back in 2017. I think Cleveland did, uh, they kind of very uh, forward thinking came out and said, Hey, we're not Cleveland anymore. We're Blockland. And we want to be the home for crypto uh, businesses in the Midwest. Right. So that was almost this idea that they had even way back then. Um, on top of that, uh, looking, you know, uh, zooming in a bit more and not talking about big cities. We have small towns right now realizing it's a huge opportunity for them to uh, attract high earning professionals 
who can work remotely from wherever the hell they are, right? So we have platforms like Make My Move right now, which you can go and visit. It's makemymove.com, where you can go and it's a marketplace where towns can list the offers they have for remote workers to come move to their town. That's incredible. Do you know how much power that gives uh, employees and just the individual to be able to say like, well, Youngstown, Ohio is offering me way more than Springfield, Illinois, so I'm going to go there. And here's all the programs they have, and here are all the things they're planning to let me do in the community, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that that's super, super exciting, and that's something that you know we can play out in terms of like, oh, what does that do to government and you know our politics? You know, for example, locally here in the United States, in terms of oh, you're getting this not so distinctive mix of red and blue, you're getting a little bit of this purple, right? And I think that's very very, very interesting. Um, so there's that. And I think the other thing, you know, in terms of talking a bit more globally, what's happening is, and I think this was uh, Balaji kind of, uh, you know, explained it in this way. So kind of like a little hat tip to him, but the world is becoming more longitudinal and not so much latitudinal. So with latitudinal, latitudinal, I don't know how to say that. So what I mean by that is horizontal. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's a better way of saying it. So what's interesting horizontal. now is you have a lot of these companies <laughs> Vertical, that are saying, horizontal. hey, you can work from anywhere as long as you're in this time zone, right? So we have WFH, which is like work from home. We have WFA, which is like work from anywhere. And I like to call this WFEST. You can work from anywhere as long as you're in the Eastern time zone or you play friendly with that. So what's very interesting now is that you have this horizontal uh, shift, right? Where people are going uh, US, uh, Europe, right? But now what you're seeing is a lot of this U.S. to Central and Latin America move because you can shift down and, and get a lot of that geo arbitrage, but still stay friendly with these companies and have a lot more work potential. So I think that's very interesting in terms of, um, of shifts now where people are thinking, okay, great, if this company or maybe not even company, maybe I'm working with a client right now. And it's a very demanding project that's short term. And so I need to be on their time zone. Do I go stay in Germany or do I go, you know, somewhere south, you know, somewhere in Africa? There's, I think Africa has a lot of potential right now for remote work. Uh, you know, they're, they're very quickly updating their infrastructure. And so I think that that's a very, very interesting thing to keep an eye on over the next 10 years. Kind of the China Belt and Road Initiative or whatever. I don't know anything about that. The Belt and Road, yeah. China throw it investing. in there and it's, uh, <laughs> good, we're ready for an Economist word, title. Uh, throw uh, it in there. Article. We're going to get picked up by uh, The Economist for this interview now because I mentioned uh, something geopolitical. Oh, Kyle's got a vision, I mean, though. Yeah, I, I was going to say I wish I was smarter uh, in terms of like being like Balaji and being able to make a bunch of geopolitical connections and like really give a, a convincing point for for a certain worldview. I mean, I think simply um, people are disconnected, their, their work and the place where they live no longer have to be connected. And that is something that we have never had before in the thousands of years that humans have been around. And the implications of that are many. I, I don't know all of them, um, but I, you know, it's like, it, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have to drive to work. I, I, there's carbon emissions there. I, I have to pay for gas. So now I have more money. I'm a saver now. It's like th there's ec economic, there's social, there, there's so many things to it. And, you know, my mind goes to like real estate and apartment complexes. And the only reason that apartment complexes are where they're at or are or, or, or good investments is because of the location. 
And those locations serve because they are close or, you know, transport hubs, right? And um, if you take that out of the equation as being important, you give people a lot more optionality and thus it, it changes the value of being in any certain location. And so the value of that real estate is now theoretically diminished, which changes a lot about like the way municipalities work because, um, you know, most of the revenue that municipalities in America make, obviously it's contiguous, uh, you know, United States point I'm American and been here. So it's clouded, but like, the, the reason that we have schools that are, are better than other schools is because real estate values are higher, which collect more real estate taxes and real estate taxes fund the municipalities. And so if, you know, there's this big shift in real estate values, you, you have this like spreading of, I guess, quality of services between larger cities, smaller cities, tertiary markets. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to watch, you know, um, but I don't know how how quickly that'll that'll happen. I think, uh, Mitko, one question I have for you is like, how has your perspective on the trajectory of this change uh, kind of changed since COVID to now and like through COVID? Because there was a moment there where people were like, you know, people are going to work from home forever. This is like the offices are dead, and now we see more people taking on this hybrid model or this office first approach. And so kind of like, where do you see yeah. uh, the trajectory So, and how it's changed? To add on to, you know, what you guys were, what we were talking about before in terms of, uh, okay, this is like what we can expect over the next five years, 10 years, but what is like the big picture? I think the next 50 years are the, the, are going to see the rise of the city state. Um, the same way that we're seeing now cities compete with each other and the, you know, Kyle, this is falling up to what you were talking about. I think we're going to have far more granular competition between cities and you're going to see, I think, especially when, once you tie in crypto to taxes way more. So as a nomad, right? Like I'd love to be able to contribute and pay for the local infrastructure that I'm using. So I think like all cities are going to have their own coin that when you go to that city and you visit it, you purchase some amount of it. And then you go to the park, you scan your phone and you pay a little bit towards the support of that thing. So I think in that way, you're going to see way more cities competing with each other. And it's going to become more of like a city focused thing, not so much as a nation. Because, for example, as a digital nomad right now, uh, you know, I go to Thailand because of Chiang Mai. I don't go to Chiang Mai because of Thailand. In, in, in some in some regards. So it's, it's it's city first, you know what I mean? Because of the community that's there. So I think that's very interesting. Um, in terms of uh, how my perspective has changed, man, I've become more bullish than ever. Uh, I always thought remote was the future. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought, uh, I've always thought remote was the future just Love based that. on like, there was this like calculus that I was like, I just don't see how this doesn't happen in some respect, right? Like if I believe that we are, and this might sound a little bit, I don't know, like crazy for some people, but like, if I believe that humanity is destined to be a multiplanetary species, then you have to factor remote work into that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if we're going to have an economy that's between Earth, Moon, and Mars, just like a starting point, we're going to have to have like the basic infrastructure of working asynchronously, right? Like if, if we're going to have a functioning economy in that context, then we must have asynchronous infrastructure built into the way that we work. It's just as simple as that. Otherwise, it's not going to work, right? 
And so that's why even back in 2016, 2017, I was saying, I don't, it might take 50 years. It might take 60 years, but I'm pretty sure remote work is the future. And COVID just took that 50, 80, however many year timeline and just shrank it to, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. So I've become more bullish than ever. I think the office is dead. Uh, at least the way in which we see it. I'm not saying that you're not going to come together or work together in some way. You know, I think co-working spaces are going to be more popular than ever. Um, but the office and the way that we viewed it in the 20s, in the 20th century, in the start of the 21st century, is dead. And so I've become more bullish than ever, and I'm more than happy to to you know verbally fight with anyone about that and to you know explore that idea. Hell yeah, I love that. I have. Three random comments, and then one more question, and then I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, first one about the donut city. This is just, I don't know why I held on to this, but on the donut model, right? Like a big, I'm just parading the donut model for being for some of the silliness. It does make a lot of sense, but you're not going to get, you know, like if you throw a, co- a, a cocktail party, not a cocktail mm-hmm. party, like a happy hour on like a non in person day, no one's going to go. So, like, that's a huge benefit of like the in person in the same city. Like, None of those ancillary social activities are people are going to participate in in the donut model. That's just a random point. I just didn't let it go for some reason. Second point, with all these predictions, I have a prediction I wanted to add to the mix. The Amish are always going to kill it, man. 30 years from now, 50 years from now, the Amish, they're going to keep on keeping yeah. on. You know what I mean? So like the communities that are, are they're just going to keep on keeping on. So good for them. It's kind of like and the broader point is like these small pockets of communities now, because Kyle kind of made that point of like, you know, property values in some area are going to go down and then maybe these people stay. I think like kind of what you're saying, just like these very instant communities that like their way of life are going to kind of create that kind of lock-in because to keep that way of life, they have to prevent people from leaving. So kind of like the Amish did that in the way that they did that. And so maybe we'll also see that in like, I don't know, like a high-end neighborhood of Chicago that still wants to have the best pub schools. So maybe like that neighborhood won't be as remote friendly or something uh, for their workforce. I don't know. And then, or like they'll continue to try to import talent and then kind of seduce them to stay there. Uh, and then the third point, just about like why I think mm-hmm. remote work's inevitable, is that like in agreement with you, it's just about like the general phenomenon of unbundling of just things over time, right? Just like that's like the general trend of technology and of like abundance and of social progress and like technological progress is just you no longer need things as the whole. We just like continue to to make the individual component like desystematize things. So, like work used to be the system that represented, like I said, like the bundle. Work was like where you go, what you do. It was those things together. Like work was just that, but now it's like you redefine work to like what the component parts are. Like now, work does not mean what where you go. Work really just means like what you produce, like what your output is. Uh, so like this is kind of that trend over time. So now it's like now we've kind of work no longer was this combination of factors. It is just like we're getting deeper and deeper to what the essence of a thing is and the essence of the thing. Of work yeah, is I now mean, like I think you're so spot on with that. It's no like, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Coast Theorem work, like, before. Uh, yeah, that's like yeah. So wait. I do. C O A. I'm gonna. It's like C O A S E. I think his name was Robert Coase who came up with it, but I might be wrong on that. But essentially, the idea behind that there there is, but there's also like I don't understand the calculus part of it. But calculus stuff. The overall idea is that the size of the business is like a business wants to a company wants to stay as small as possible but expands when it's easier to bring someone in and take up you know that uh complexity of expanding versus working with outside talent so what technology is doing is it's making it really easy to exactly like you're saying to unbundle the company 
right? Because it's so easy now to work with freelancers and going back to why I think freelancing is so important at this stage of, of, of online business and, and the economy and work is that we're going to see a lot of this exactly like you said, unbundling of the company where you can have one or two people who are like, great, we can get a majority of things done without sourcing and, and automation. And then from time to time, we need to bring in like an expert or two who come in, get their job done and then leave. And we just continue rolling on. Uh, and so I think that, that the, the unbundling company is just so important in understanding the future of, of the economy and, and of work. Yeah. My, my final question for you. So I think one answer to this, to this question is exactly what you're doing, but what business opportunities lie in capitalizing on all of these humongous changes. So I think one of them, right, is like making it easier to start businesses that benefit from these changes uh, by providing information, which is what you're doing. But maybe it's co-working spaces, just like what are one or two kind of areas you see? Maybe it's Airbnb hosting. Like what are the other, I mean, because you only have so many hours in the day, I'm sure there's 10 other things you'd be loving to do, but you're only going for what you're going for because of limitations of time. Great question. Is being uh, and and you're your spot on the opportunity money. Because yeah, yeah. Of like, what's you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, don't go digging for gold, but like sell the picks and shovels. And everyone is so focused on the web three, which I think is great. Like I, I totally understand that. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there, but there's almost this very interesting thing happening where everyone is so gung ho about web three being the future and like working in that space that there's not as many people paying attention to like the work from anywhere infrastructure. And that's going to be just as huge, right? As all of work goes remote, someone has to build the infrastructure, the tools that you need, all of these different things that you need in order to make that function. And so I think if you are like, okay, if I believe that a majority of work in the future is going to be done remotely and based on that assumption, what are the things that need to be improved in an infrastructure and, and go and tackle those leverage points? Like that's massive, right? So when we start talking about exactly what you said, co-working spaces, uh, co-living spaces, I think are going to be huge as people are traveling around and they don't have uh, you know, a long-term rental and, and they want to still interact with people. I think that's going to be huge. Talk about like traveling with families, right? How do you, how do you teach your kids if you're moving around more often? Um, I think uh, housing as a service is going to be a huge oh, yeah. thing where you pay kind of like a monthly fee and you have a whole bunch of different places that you can stay in. I think there's a lot of this stuff that um, that's going to be very, very interesting and in and that people are going to be focusing in. So I would say that if you just think about like in terms of opportunities, if I believe that the future of work is mostly remote, what are the things that need to be built out to support that? And I think there's a ton of opportunities there. I think that's a great, great question for people to think on at the end of this conversation, uh, just to direct people selfishly for a moment. I think like, I think you follow him as well on Twitter, like Matt Redler, I think that from Panther, that's like a great example, right? If we're hiring people from everywhere and people are working from everywhere for the time being, we still have like a pretty archaic global legal structure where to hire people, you need to like fill out paperwork and then yeah. submit it to an office somewhere in a random country. It's like, you need to hire someone in Spain. You need someone on the ground to fill out this paperwork and put it in an office and like let his company handle all that craziness for you. So that's like a good example just to give people some additional thing like remote insurance, remote uh, health insurance for another example, remote payroll compliance. So just thinking through all those things, we'll give the people some more ideas. Uh, but I think that is all the time we have today at Mitco. Where can people find your podcast, your 
social media if that's still important yeah so media. Uh, you can connect and with me on twitter uh i'm m-i-t-k-o-k-a uh i'm very active on twitter these days i'm i'm really loving it there so so come on over there say hi shoot me a dm uh, i i'd love to connect uh you can uh listen to the podcast uh just google that remote life podcast you'll find it i also have a newsletter called remote insider uh that goes out every single monday and it's actually very popular so uh, or at least gets really uh, high ratings from the subscribers. And then finally, yeah, if if you're interested in freelancing, uh, if you're a freelancer yourself and you want to kind of you know improve or you're interested in getting into it, uh, just head on over to joinparable.com and uh, you know yeah you can get it right there. That closes out this conversation with Mitko. Three quick takeaways, then we'll sign off. First one is I like his pivot from the Parable original model of the online synchronous community with guest speakers and just all these difficult things to coordinate everyone you know across time zones has to be interested in the same things and show up at the same time and there's just a lot of coordination that has to go in and it's kind of not the best for anybody whereas this is a hyper specific product that's good for a select group of people and the people who it does serve are better served by it so good job Mikko. i think that was uh listen to the data made a good pivot second takeaway I like how he describes his target customer for this new product. You know, it's $300 for a PDF. Some people might think that's crazy. Some people might think that that's a scam. But for the type of person who might want to buy this, uh, what Mitka would describe as an action taker, if they're already a freelancer, if they're thinking about freelancing, you know, and they apply one idea, right? Increase their rate from $25 an hour to $35 an hour, or increase your prices in this way, or consider this marketing channel you didn't consider before, and you land a $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 project, it's pretty clear that that money was well spent. Uh, so I like the action takers framing and the possibility for an immediate ROI. Third takeaway is kind of just the new internet paradigm of how you can make products better over time. So I kind of describe it as a PDF, but it's really just access to this online resource that will continue to change over time. So I don't know if this was on air or off air, but I asked Mitko, and it sounds like this product isn't as good for a freelance engineer as it is for, let's say, a freelance copywriter. You're going to you know, release two separately. What, do, what, what are your thoughts? And he's like, well, I can continuously update it. And as it gets better, I can send the people who already bought it the better one. And I can send people, you know, I can then more aggressively market the new and improved edition to that demographic that wasn't as well served by the first one. Uh, so I like that a lot. I think that, you know, if it was just a book, he couldn't do that. And that's a really cool option to consider. Like you can release something imperfect for all people uh, in the sense that it's imperfect for a developer, even if it's super good for a copywriter and already kind of start to collect revenue and market it. And then as it gets better, you just improve the same product. Uh, that's obviously not a new business model for something like software, but kind of the continuously improved info product business model, I think is really interesting. And there's definitely like some ideas I have based off of that, that I wasn't thinking about in the same way to because I was thinking like you release it and, and that's it. So that's all I have to say for this episode with Mitko. Make sure you are subscribed if you care to be among the first to know about the next episode. And otherwise, have a great day. That's all for me. See ya.